the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. How are you, Lindsay? Oh, I'm really excited to be part of this third installment of Don't Push Pause Pandemic Edition. Um, If you guys are, if this is your first episode, we sound a little different than usual. We're recording remotely from our separate places of dwelling. Justin, you're lucky you you got the studio. Yeah, I, I, I do feel thankful that I got the studio. But uh, yeah, we pre-record a lot of these episodes so we can keep bringing you new episodes. We love it. We're not going to stop doing this. We're still watching these movies and and we love talking about them. And this week is Tom Hanks's That Thing You Do. Exclamation point. Exclamation point from 1996. I'm glad we did this movie. This is, it it makes sense for us. We're both in bands and we both have uh, been around a lot of bands and music, so um, we did the Fabulous Stains not too long ago, but I'm glad that we're doing another movie about a band. Like the Stains movie, That Thing You Do stands out from what I think of as a typical movie about a band. You know, um, it is one could say this movie is more vanilla in some ways, but at the same time, it's also it's just a, a sweet story that doesn't feel dishonest it's just a family-friendly 60s version of, of a band story. Yeah, I think anything that this movie lacks in grittiness, it makes makes up for in sincerity. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, this movie is not gritty whatsoever. And also was Tom Hanks's first endeavor into not only directing, but writing and being in the holy trinity of, uh, <laughs> of the movie business. So that's that's pretty cool and um, a big uh, I would think a pretty big thing for him in his career. And this is the height of Tom Hanks's almost sort of like I guess second kind of like second coming. He stalled out for a minute like after the end of the '80s and then kind of made a little comeback with the League of Their Own. But then uh, that thing you do, him writing directing this was like coming off of the. F- the height of like winning Oscars back to back two years in a row, the huge gargantuan hit that was Forrest Gump. Tom Hanks was everywhere when Forrest Gump was out. That was the movie to see, you know, where do you go from there? So that that's going to be one topic that we'll be talking about. Yeah. I think talking about the actor turned director, because I, I want to say when this movie first came out, it was somewhat, I, I think back f- for whatever reason I get, cause I was younger and I was probably more cynical, but like, the actor turned director just seemed kind of annoying. Like, oh, this movie's gonna suck. But it makes now it makes more sense. Like, why an actor directing actors would would make a better movie than a director who's like never acted before directing actors? Um, maybe not always, but I think that this is a a case of where like where it worked really well. So we'll get into actor turned writer director. Yes, yes, that'll be one topic. And the music of the movie, of course, is, I mean, it's a huge thing, of course, in the movie. And also what we think of the realness 
uh, of being in a band, how, how this movie represents that. Totally. As always, we love to talk about the cast, and this is definitely, again, like an ensemble movie, so a lot of early performances by some uh, talented young cast. So many cutie pies. Um, but yeah, lots to talk about, a fun discussion I think coming up for you with that thing you do. Uh, after that, we'll get into our picks of the week. Uh, what did you go for this week, Lindsay? There are so many choices that one could pick off of that thing you do. There are just so many good folks involved in this movie. But I went with one of my uh, favorite Tom Hanks movies from the 80s, uh, and that was 1986's Money Pit. Such a funny movie. And, and it's like Tom Hanks, I think, doing what he does best, that sort of like charming goofiness like sort of dorky but so lovable it's funny how he does it so well and somehow you're not put off by him or annoyed by him he's just really good at at um that style of humor before i think that style of humor hit its stride later on in the 90s and what was your pick this week sir so my connection with my pick of the week for that thing you do um, in 1996 Giovanni Ribisi and Steve Zahn also appeared in another movie together, uh, 1996's Suburbia, uh, directed by Richard Linklater. Um, and that's, it's a movie that I hadn't seen in a long time, and just watching it uh, prior to this episode, it is as sharp and kind of angry and relevant, I think, as it, as it was when it came out. For some reason, it's been since the 90s that I've revisited this movie but i just looked over at my movies and i totally have it on vhs i don't know i'm gonna have to watch that tonight and a lot of uh it's another movie too where the soundtrack is like really good i think like sonic youth did some of the music and a lot of other cool 90s bands on the soundtrack the one aspect that sticks out about that movie to me um is how cool the music is and of course always we'll round things out with our murray moments but before we get into our first clip from that thing you do, Lindsay, can you just give us a quick lowdown, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Of course, Justin, I would love to. So that thing you do is a little story about a no-name band from a small town in Pennsylvania. After their existing drummer breaks his arm, he's replaced by a gentleman acquaintance who is extremely good at his craft, that being drumming, of course. And when he accidentally changes up the peppiness of the band's sound, they become the toast of the town, becoming popular in their town, county, the state. And then they sign with a major label manager who takes them for a ride all the way up the charts. What happens to this band we come to know as the Oneaters? I mean, the Wonders? Well, it's a common story in the music industry, but this is certainly a fresh take on the idea of becoming a one-hit wonder. I think that's a good summary. I think that sums it up pretty nice. I mean, there's a lot, like every movie, there's a lot more that happens in it, you know? Oh, sure. It's pretty much it. <laughs> we'll go to our first clip from That Thing You Do, and then we'll talk about it. Sounds good. Here you go, kids. On the house. She had her eye on my Jimmy. Hey, three stooges, come on, house. Still she had some fine things to say about our drummer as well, though. Get out, what'd you say? I don't know. Hey, guys, I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to say that I uh, love your song, love that music. I want to know where I can get the record. Outside. Hey, Pops. Hey, Pops, I'll give you a pop. Hey, wasn't that our fan? Hey, what do you guys think about that? For what? Maybe we should make a record. Like, actually make a record. A record, record, record. Yeah, that's what I mean. Not one that we play. Yeah, I mean, we could, like, sell copies of them right here for a buck a piece. There's a sound booth at Telemark that we could use. No, that's for, like, two people. It's for birthday greetings. You're talking to Spartacus here. I happen to have 
a relative in the record industry. Ooh, Uncle Bob. Uncle, who's Uncle Bob? <laughs> he records church music, choirs, favorite sermons, stuff my mom listens to. So could he record our music? Maybe. Wouldn't do it for free. And we'd have to watch our language. So like we were saying in the beginning, occasionally this happens, a, a actor decides to branch out and, and direct a movie of their own, even sometimes write and direct them. Historically, those movies have generally not been too great. And I, and I don't know if that's because there was no skill there in directing or if they just, you know, it was a vanity project or whatever. But this movie by Tom Hanks certainly wasn't a vanity project for himself. He was already as about as big of a household name as you could imagine. Again, coming off of winning back-to-back Oscars, and uh, so he started a production company, uh, wrote and directed that thing you do just off of the heels of all this great success that he had. They always say, write what you know. And Tom Hanks wasn't in the band, but he certainly was familiar with music. He definitely based a lot of this stuff off of things that he was familiar with or stories that he found that he thought were interesting. And uh, I think it was like a really interesting way how he connected the dots into writing the script for that thing you do. So, yeah, he was white hot at this point and uh 95 basically um was when this story was kind of conjuring up uh within him so he was coming off of toy story forrest gump and apollo 13 and like couldn't have been a more well-known face i mean he had been that way his entire career but especially at this moment and he kind of just wanted to disappear a little bit, you know, not completely, but like, what do you do when you're that hot? You know, he just kind of wanted to do something else. And so the idea to do some type of other creative endeavor, you know, is there, but for him, it directing wasn't something that he had always wanted to do. And there are actors that, you know, that that's what they know that they want to do eventually one day or people that, you know, know that they just want to be a writer or a director and like that's what they go to. Tom Hanks said that, you know, acting is something that's instinctual. You just know like that's if that's what you like to do, that's what you want to do. You go for it. And the same thing goes for directing. But for him, it wasn't just like the natural way to go. But he was inspired to write this story. And like you said, Justin, you know, he had um, he kind of grew up at the same time as my mom and my mom talks about like music from that era of like 50s and 60s that, you know, on the radio, there wasn't necessarily there wasn't like a rap station or a, or a country station or, a, you know, genre based radio stations. Everything was just kind of mixed together. So you had a hodgepodge of all different types of music. And of course, the Beatles were a huge thing in the 60s. And Tom Hanks was a fan of the Beatles, but he was also a fan of a lot of other bands that were around that time. There was an interview where he recounted kind of like the idea of the Genesis idea, I guess, of where that thing you do came came from. And he said that at one point, and I never knew this actually until he told this story, was that at one point um, the Beatles were on tour, I think he said in like Australia or Japan or, or something like that. And uh, Ringo Starr got sick and was out for like eight or nine shows, something like that. But you're not just going to stop a tour when you were the hottest band around. And so he was just replaced for those for those few shows. 
and they were still doing appearances. And this guy, Jimmy Nichols, people were still referring to him as Ringo. You know, it didn't make a difference. They were just, these are the Beatles. So Tom Hanks, in remembering that this happened, was kind of like, well, that's pretty interesting. That guy, you know, what's his story? And that's kind of what the, the idea of where that thing you do springs off from. And so it took him probably, I mean, he says it took around three-ish months. I think he said he started it in December and finished it in March of the following year. And that was around um, when Apollo 13 was wrapping, I believe. So he was kind of like writing it on breaks during that. And then what do you do when you have this finished, pretty much finished script it wasn't an outline but you know he was happy with it and he showed it to um his friend director jonathan demi and he kind of suggested hey dude like why don't you do this and started talking to him about it and jonathan demi and i think even tom hanks really came around after having this discussion was like you know you have this is your baby you have so much love for this script and this story why don't you know? Why don't you do something crazy and you direct it yourself? So it's kind of where the initial springboard idea of this came from, and um, it's a perfect vehicle, I think, for Tom Hanks. And he said that a lot of the characters, there's a lot of him in each one of the characters, but in some ways, the main character of Guy, played by Tom Everett Scott, is in a lot of ways kind of Tom Hanks a little bit. Yeah, it really looks like him too. I never kinda, thought kinda that. Has like... I never thought that until like. Oh really? Oh. No, I never thought it until wow. I saw a picture of them standing next to each other and was like, "Huh, look at that." Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, I remember when the movie came out, it like annoyed me or something because I was just like, "Oh, the, he's doing like this." I'm a writer director now, and then he's going to cast this guy that looks like him to obviously he's that character type thing. Well, well, you know, he he initially when Tom Everett Scott was up for the role and like he, you know, did the audition and he liked him, he had kind of felt like I can't cast him because he looks like me. And it was Rita Wilson, his wife, who, you know, just popped in a tape of the auditions and said, who's this guy? And he I mean, he looks great. He's you know, he's nailing this audition. And he said, yeah, he's great and everything, but he looks like me. And Rita Wilson's like, I guess, but not that much. You should really go with him. So in some ways, I mean, thanks, Rita Wilson. That's what I'd be saying. There's something about this movie that uh, it grabs me because there's so many there's so many movies about bands and, you know, bands that almost made it or bands that rocket to success and Tom Hanks found a way to find the best parts of those movies and then also kind of bring his own voice to this. I think we identify Hanks as like a very uh, family friendly, uh, jovial, kind of charming, heartwarming type persona. And I think that rubs off on this movie. I think like this movie kind of like encapsulates like this charming story of a band that does you know, kind of flame out, but at the same time, it doesn't get too dark or anything. You know, we, the movie ends on, on a, on a happy tone. Even if it isn't exactly the, you know, best resolution for the wonders. um, Yeah. There is still somewhat of an inspirational feel. And these guys, you know, had, had this chance and really did make something happen. And even if the story of the wonders isn't a, you know, based on a true story, this is something that, especially at that time, is is something completely feasible. You know, there's a lot of things I think are true to the time period for this movie and then also true to 
actually being in the band, you know, there's a lot of things that Tom Hanks captures. You've got these four people and they're not always, they don't always have the same things in common. They also don't always, aren't always going to have the same aspirations about the music is, is the main, you know, if there's like a main person who's writing the songs, who's like pushing the band or who's like trying to delegate things, they show like the bass player guy, he's getting ready to go off to the army and this is like fun for him but this isn't like he doesn't want to make this his life where jimmy the lead uh singer and songwriter this is like what he wants to do you know he's he's thinking about his career in the long terms he's serious about his music he doesn't want them to be trampled on he does you know even like thinking ahead of like copywriting and getting their album made when they start getting into the music industry he's thinking ahead where the other guitar player played by Steve Zahn is just like, they're giving us money. They're taking us on a nice, you know, bus. Like we should just do (laughs) whatever anybody says. This is like a dream come true, you know? And then you've got the Tom Everett Scott character. Who's just such an easy, you know, he's like the easygoing guy who's, you know, very smart and very intelligent, but also is like, sees that it's an opportunity. And he see, he kind of sees things for what they are at that moment. He's enjoying it, but also kind of not acting like a total, like screw up at the same time. And it really does show how well-developed these characters are. And for some reason, Tom Hanks has the wherewithal um, to know um, how bands function. Even on, like, you're kind of talking, like, major plot points or major things in each character. But also these, you know, very nuanced ideas of being in a band, like the essence of being in a band and, 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 and small things right down to what the experience is like with your first recording, you know, or, or the band member that talks too much about being in a band or the moment where you think, how do we get here? Or like the time that you play a show and completely bomb or the time that you play a show and it's incredible and you can't even like, you, you don't even know who you are at that point. Or even my favorite is the, the two girlfriend aspect of you have one girlfriend that is completely supportive of being in the band and is just like, like their number one cheerleader. And then you've got the girlfriend that's like, so how long is this like a music (laughs) thing? How, how long is this going to be over soon? And these are, these are like these little things that you don't think of unless you're in a band or have experienced it or been someone involved with it. And to me so many times, you know, this happens and I can't help but laugh about it. Even I, I think the the Tom Everett Scott being the the guy that that talks too much to his girlfriend about being in a band and like is oblivious to the fact that she could yeah. not care less. <laughs> when I th- and and to the capturing the excitement of hearing your song on the radio for the first time, which. Dude, um, the, yes. the scene where they're all running in the street and they they meet up and they hear the song. Uh, you know, if you have a, if you have a heart of stone, you might think that's kind of like a cheesy scene or something. But um, I think that scene truly captures like if you've if you've ever been in a band and you've whatever radio station someone plays your song, it'll it'll bring you the tears. And that that scene to me is probably the where they're running down the street and they hear that thing you do for the first time on the radio is like in a, it's it's like a top ten scene for me in movies. I mean, it just it gets me every time and it, it makes me feel good and it does everything that's supposed to do without, I, I think coming off like saccharin or like 
um, forced. It, it just feels like so appropriate for that moment and the way it's staged in, in the way that the, turn the music up loud, they get into the, you know, he's working in the stereo, the way it's all connected, he's working in the stereo store and everyone else in the store starts to groove into it and they're turning on all the radios. Uh, just such a beautiful scene. And very true to life. I, Whenever I have experienced this in both the bands that I've been in, hearing yourself on the radio, you're kind of just like, you want to call everyone that you know, but you're like, I'm such a dork right now. I can't do that. But this is like the ultimate celebration and you can't even hide your excitement. And if you were to ask any even big name band now, I guarantee nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10 are going to tell you they know exactly where they were at the time when they first heard their song on the radio. Well, uh, lastly, before we go into another clip, I wanted to talk a little bit about Tom Hanks is an actor turned writer director. He certainly made a movie that I think has stood the test of time. Like this movie totally holds up. But one of the big things about this movie that I think make it so in, like captivating are the performances. And, you know, Tom Hanks had been directed by some of the best directors working in Hollywood for like 15 years. And had had acted across from some of the best actors in Hollywood for the last 15 years. And so really thinking of it that way, it's like it's it seems kind of like a no brainer that he would direct actors in a way to not only give good performances, but also to have performances that are engaging to an audience, but also kind of make you you know feel in a way where you don't like a character, but you don't hate them too much. And I think that's always a tough thing in movies. There's so many movies where like one performance can kind of ruin a movie, you know, because the character is either too unlikable or they're too sappy, you know, or they're too, you know, they complain too much. And the character, Jimmy, I think really toes the line. The lead singer of the Wonders is very driven, but he's like very egotistical. He can be a little bit heartless and he can be very uptight. All that is like comes across in the movie very clear. But at the same time, you don't hate Jimmy. I mean, he's not a character that you like, but he doesn't make you hate him and you because you got you gotta you have to believe that he has a talent you have to believe that he is a talented songwriter that he is like a good singer and that his talents outweigh his ego um and i think and i think that tom hanks like really did a great job at like making that character someone that you can identify with and not totally hate you know it's it seems like a simple thing but I've seen plenty of movies where I'm just like, oh, I, do, I don't like this character and I just I can't watch the movie again because I just don't want to spend time with this character. Yeah, I think Jimmy is a good example of that, that he has the potential to be such a dick that you don't want to care about, especially because of a, a scene later when he breaks up with his girlfriend. It's just so callous and heartless. And you get flashes of him being very focused on his music. It's about the music man and his vision. In some ways, it's admirable, but you don't, uh, you never, yeah, you never really hate him throughout the rest. And I think that it also, that puts in into perspective um, the rest of the band and how they really do feel like a band you know that has to do with how these actors like came together in the first place we'll get to that in discussion too but there really is a lot to be said for having an actor be your director and from everything that i've seen of of the actors involved talking on this movie uh tom hanks seemed like such an inspirational figure And, you know, everyone was kind of intimidated at first, but really ended up being someone that just took everyone under his wing, it seemed like. Lastly, I'll just say with Hanks, 
writing uh, the characters, I think it was it was a good call to make the central character be the drummer of the band, who's the last person to enter into the band. And you has mean the, di- the only the only band member that matters, drummers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Thank you. Um, but I thought, you know, it's interesting to me that, that, you know, he didn't choose the movie to be through the eyes of the, the lead guy, you know, and have the focus be on him. I thought that was a very smart move to have the movie be focused on someone who wasn't a part of the band. They joined the band. They're the drummer. They're the backbeat. They're the reason why the song took off, though, you know, and the song leads with the drums. And I just thought that that was like a really good narrative drive Um, because we've always seen the movie where it's like focused on the main guy and everybody else kind of like slips into the background and it's all about the main person's struggle. And I really love that we got to see more of the characters through the eyes of someone who's like, hey, man, I'm just here. I just joined the band, but I've got ideas. And and he becomes like the centerpiece of the movie. Two aspects of that that I appreciate in particular about that thing you do is that when you have typically like the drummer is in the background, you don't really hear too much from them, if ever. But you could have the singer be jealous in this in this situation. And that doesn't really happen, or at least it doesn't come up. There's like a little twinge, but that's really just Jimmy's ego in general. There's no hate directed towards Guy, the drummer. And also the... I mean, the twist in the story is the fact that when Guy joins the band, everything changes for them. And, you know, it's not really said. It's just kind of understood that, yo, dude, you're you're the reason that we're here, you know, where where we are today. But the payoff for that is never said until the very, very end of the movie. And it's and it's Jimmy's girlfriend who says it to Guy. And you can see, you know, just this like relief over that comes over Guy and he just feels like, I mean, you know, not to be like uh, have a selfish moment or something, but was really like someone said, hey, dude, it was everybody. And it was you that made us all be able to get to where we are today. When I love them, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes too, is that moment where uh, Steve Zahn, the guitar player, looks at Tom Everett Scott. And he's like, how do we get here? And Tom Everett Scott's been quoting Spartacus throughout the whole movie. It's like his, his bit. And he's like, I, I brought here, I am Spartacus. And, you know, and he did, you know, the, and, but I love yeah. that in the look on his face, you know, there's this sly smile of like a little bit of like serious and a little bit of joking, but it, it's just like such a perfect little beat that they put in there. Well, uh, let's go on to another clip from that thing you do. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast and we'll talk most importantly about the music of this movie. The wonders are in breach of contract. Sorry. I'm really sorry, Mr. White. Well, don't worry. No one's going to prison, son. It's a very common tale. Well, maybe for you, but I was in a band and we still have a hit record. Yeah, you do. One hit wonders. It's a very common tale. My first time in a real recording studio. You want to hang around for a while? Okay by me. But you're out of the hotel this afternoon. Can't help that. No, Guy, Horace was right about you. You are the smart one. Lenny is the fool. Jimmy is the talent. Faye is... Well, Faye is special, isn't she? And you are the smart one. That's what I think, anyway. 
with Tom Hanks being at the height of his fame in 1996, he probably could have pretty much cast anybody he wanted. I can't imagine anybody not wanting to work with Tom Hanks in his directorial debut. But he went with a bunch of young upstarts. A lot of the main cast that was in this, all recognizable faces now, but at the time... Uh, you know, they hadn't really done a ton of movies or like a lot of big movies, but really successful in casting just the perfect actors for, for these roles. And like, I think really makes the movie come to, to life and it's really rich. Like, and, and of course, that's with any movie, you know, casting is such an important thing, but a lot of times it's like, will all these characters like bounce off each other? You know, how, how well will it work? And I think this is a movie like many where you have an ensemble cast of kind of young serious actors you get this kind of performance where um there's so much chemistry on the screen i mean it's like just uh one of the one of the views i did for the you know watch the movie like three times for this episode uh one of the times i watched it was just for the acting and the, the chemistry is kind of off the charts for me with this movie between the actors and between the main cast and supporting cast there's a lot of of people to talk about here but just like with the four main members of of the wonders i think one thing that makes it so brilliant was how they decided to get these guys together and initially rehearse like even before going through the script all of them i mean to do a movie about a band everybody's gonna know how to play an instrument right uh so they had independent lessons each one of them had to learn their instrument and then after a month of that then they go through basically a month of practicing as a band before they ever go through the script together, which I think was brilliant. I mean, that's how you not only create this idea of a working band, but then you create the atmosphere kind of behind it. The same, the same thing that uh, another actor director, Rob Reiner did for stand by me at saying something. Yeah. And, and I think that's a the good dedication on an actor's part that they spent a full month, just night and day, trying to learn how to play these instruments so that the movie could actually show them playing together as a band. Cause I think that's a really important thing about having a movie with a band. Like when, when you have a band and they kind of do like a quick wide shot and they cut in close to like their fingers on a piano where they get a double <laughs> to play the instrument, it, it never really has the same feeling. And this movie really, you know, I get the sense that they're up there on stage looking at each other and they're playing these songs together. That really comes across on screens for Tom Everett Scott, who was not a drummer to sit down and, and real, I mean, really pick up the instrument so quickly, even having his own uh, adopting like a jazz style, you know, because he listens yeah, to jazz yeah. in the movie. It's it's incredible to me because I don't think the drum, I mean, the, I don't play drums. I've tried. I've attempted to play. I know you're a drummer. I, I've tried many times and I just, I it, it's like so foreign to me. I just can't, I can't do it. Guitar it makes sense to me. Drums, I just, it's the separation of, of several things that I have a big problem with and it's really impressive to me that Tom Everett Scott looks so comfortable and and like he's been playing the drums for like 20 years. I think in order to look natural for as many times as we see the band like playing the song in its entirety and like you said it's not these like cutaway shots or close-ups on their hands where it's obviously not them that is totally impressive. I mean I, I taught myself to play the drums but it wasn't overnight and what this guy had two months to learn the drums the and look believable for a major motion picture one that's a lot of pressure 
And two, he completely pulls it off. And I think that's something that does come up all the time whenever uh, the other actors talk about the movie. I know Steve Zahn, who plays Lenny, the lead guitarist, he did you know, play a little bit of guitar. And Ethan Embry knew some bass from high school. So they kind of had a background in that. But Jonathan Sheck sure didn't. And I think one of the producers said he looked like he was holding a dead fish or something when he put the guitar in his hand. So they really had to work on looking natural. And I mean, you've got two levels here. You've got to be a believable actor and be a believable musician. And in some movies that doesn't always work out. But yeah, I, th- I think the the dedication to having a band actually look like they're playing instruments is just a huge thing for a music movie. And, and you'd be surprised at how many movies uh, do not go to the effort. Yeah. And because it's easier to just cut away from that or have a double than have somebody actually learn an instrument and to play the drums i'm sorry i mean tom everett scott had to have already been musically inclined i think he said he played the trumpet in high school but that's a little different than playing the drums but i think you have to have some sense of good rhythm in order to pick it up and look as good as he does and i granted he played this song well multiple i think at least four wonder songs that they were um required to play uh, live for the movie but still you're playing that over and over and over again he looks like a great drummer it's amazing and i really think he's a great actor i think he has this like natural charm to him you know when you see him on screen he seems like somebody that you'd want to hang out with you know he seems mm-hmm. like he'd you know be a positive person to be around and uh it's kind of a bummer because he's you, you know he's one of those actors that i think was in you know two or three like big budget movies that didn't do too well and then kind of just like drifted and it's like you don't really see him in too much uh he's recently been in a show that i really like andrea savage's produced show that she stars in called i'm sorry he plays her husband in that it's been around for like three seasons i've always enjoyed whenever he pops up in a movie and he's done his fair share of of television and i think he's a one a great actor and I have no idea what he's like in in his real life, but he certainly seems like a very personable person. And I know that he and uh, Steve Zahn are still pretty tight. I think all of the guys actually are, are yeah. pretty good friends, but he and Steve Zahn, um, I guess, are are pretty good friends. And I and I got to put this in because you know I'm a I'm a big Jean Claude Van Damme fan. I'm even yeah. one, of, one of those fans that that watched the movies that Jean Claude Van Damme did outside of the 90s but tom everett scott is in one of the better movies that jean claude van damme did after the 2010s and that's uh, enemies closer oh okay okay just had to you throw know, that in just so you know people know what a dorky van damme fan i am <laughs> um this might be dorkier uh, a dorkier uh tom everett scott appreciation mention i like the kind of remake of American Werewolf in London when he did American Werewolf in Paris. And I think he is very sweet in that movie and kind of brings the same kind of essence of sweetness that the uh, character did in American Werewolf in, in London. I like the original better, but I'm what I'm saying is I appreciate him in that movie. Damn you, Lindsay. Now I'm going to have to rewatch that. <laughs> I haven't watched it since it came out, and I remember it being terrible, so I was like... 
and I was, I, I, was I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bash on any movies. So I didn't cite that as one of the movies I think like sort of like toppled his career because it bombed so bad and everyone hated it. I'm um, not saying I'm not saying it's box office gold. I'm just saying that yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, well, I appreciate the man in the movie. Just the and... fact that you appreciate it. Now I'm going to go watch it again. <laughs> and I'm going to have to track it down. All right, so moving on from Tom Everett Scott. Let's see, where do we even go from here? Uh, I'd like I mean, to go. Have... The, I got a lot of love for Steve Zahn. I was uh, gonna you know. say Steve Zahn, and I, I think Steve Zahn is the perfect comedic relief that the movie needs. I mean, he in a lot of a lot of what he does, it does seem improvised. I've you know in several movies, especially in my pick of the week, Suburbia, but he just has like I think a an instinctive comedic edge, and even the way he like is when you see him listening to somebody and then answer them, he he's being very facetious, but in the very funny way. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of times like just his persona, it's like, will remind you of like, you know, somebody funny that, you know, that, you know, it's like once they, they get, that get, gets a little silly after they got a few drinks in them. One thing I really appreciate about Steve Zahn is obviously he's a great comedian, but that he is really versatile in what he can do. Even in a movie like this, he can have a range of emotions. You know, sometimes more often than not, it's a lot of excitement, but then he can kind of throw in some realness. And we see that in in a lot of movies that he's done. One of I really like him in writing Cars with Boys. I think he really toggles that kind of like the opposite in having way more dramatic moments than than comedic, but those things are still kind of intertwined in that movie too. Yeah, he has a good bit of range. I mean, he definitely, in movies like Out of Sight and Happy Texas, is like the comedic person, you know, or the comedic relief. But then, like you said, in, in Riding in Cars with Boys, get put turns in a very great dramatic performance. And also uh, Rescue Dawn, if anyone has seen the Werner Herzog uh, war prison movie, he turns in like a really great dramatic performance in that. He still adds like his little bits that he has. Like you can tell it's something that he puts in every performance like a little comedy or like the way he says something but I think it makes his serious parts even all the more like stick out because he can go back and forth between the two if I can throw in one more Steve Zahn uh, appreciation it would be in in a movie that is neither um or his performance is neither comedic or dramatic it's very straightforward but i love his supporting role in shattered glass and i know you appreciate that we you and i have yeah. an inside joke about this movie but he's he's great in that one as well shattered glass the only movie that we'll do of, of, <laughs> as our feature film that came out after 2000 i can't so much wait to talk about that movie <laughs> we talk about it enough off of uh, off the mic so why not do it as a as, for the podcast all of a sudden, everyone's Googling Shattered Glass. I've yeah. never even heard of this movie. You need to see it. Yes. <laughs> Jonathan Sheck. Very familiar in a lot of like sort of 90s indies movies. He's more of like an indie actor, I think. He did a lot of mm-hmm. uh, indie films in the 90s. Dude, um, Doom Generation. Yeah. yeah. And Splendor. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he, he's really great in this movie because he does have this sort of arrogance that, you know, this character needed. He, he kind of almost plays like the typical talented rock star where, they, you know, because of their talent, they can be such an a-hole. And it's, you know, it's something that you've read about time and time again with real life talented musicians where they say, oh, like they're so mean and 
they're a jerk or whatever, but then they made this album or they wrote this song. And yeah. so I think he sort of epitomizes that that idealism of, of the sort of like troubled artist though he doesn't i like that he's not a guy that's like getting wrapped up in drugs and just in that in general of the movie i appreciate that you know he's more of a guy who's so wrapped up in his own talent and his own self that he you know thinks that he's better than everybody and kind of craps on people especially his love interest played by Liv tyler who you know has been the person that supported him way before they got successful isn't it so nice and just refreshing? I mean, this movie is refreshing in general, but that for a movie about a band, it doesn't have some type of spiral into drug or alcohol addiction. It's it's yeah. unexpected, actually. And, and speaking of Liv Tyler, really, like in my opinion, like a 90s icon, you know, of like pop culture. Yeah. Um, and has turned in some really great performances. I, re- I really don't think that there's a movie that I dislike her in, but to me, she really is like at the center of like sort of like 90s music type movies between That Thing You Do and Empire Records, but has also turned in some really great dramatic performances and then, of course, been in like just gigantic, huge blockbusters as well and has like a particular look and style and even her voice like just... All the things that I think like make a Hollywood icon. And when you have a character that is the girlfriend of the lead singer of the band, that can be a throwaway character. And Faye is written in the story to to not be a throwaway character. She is actually a, a member of the band. And she does it with such grace and elegance. She's respectful of herself. And we see that especially in the uh, scene where... Jimmy breaks up with her. I love that scene so much. But Liv Tyler really brings something to this role that is so special and, and dare I say, magical. And I also feel like I, I always thought that it was kind of intentional that she was cast in a movie about music, that being that she's the daughter of Steven Tyler and Aerosmith. Uh, but I, she really did audition for this and evidently just nailed it. I, I couldn't think or want for someone better than Liv Tyler though in this role I love I love like you said I I love that she's not just like the girlfriend of the band you know she gets incorporated into what they're doing and and helping them create their style and then of course the ending of the movie I think is is successful and having this sort of like heartwarming ending that you know she gets together with Tom Everett Scott after Jimmy dumps her and again a saccharine sweet potential ending you know for a movie but for some reason I don't feel like I've been hit across the face with sugar it really it's heartwarming it's a gosh darn positive and uplifting movie and not not to um you know save the best for last or forget about the bass player or anything being that he actually doesn't have a name in the movie other than the bass player I was assuming uh, we weren't even going to talk about the fact that <laughs> there was a bass player in the movie we're but bass I guess, player I guess... um i have such a soft spot like a like a brad renfro soft spot for ethan embry and he brings that adorable sweet kind of dopiness that he does to a lot of roles um not i mean in in his younger days he's kind of moved on to more mature roles obviously now but at this point, I think he was 17, actually, when they shot this movie. But his sweetness couldn't be better 
um, for playing a bass player. I mean, how many jokes are there out there about bass players and drummers? And he could fit more than a few of those. And um, I don't know. I just I love him in this role. He always has the legacy of being a of being one of the Rusties in the National Lampoon's Vacation series. Oh yeah, I mean that's kind of that's kind of a big deal. And and, and a big part of like the big '90s movies, uh, also being in Empire Records as well. Empire Records, yeah, with Liv Tyler and man, I love Can't Hardly Wait. I have no shame about saying that I love that movie. And he's the star of that one. Um, that's the that's your that's your wonders. main yeah. That's the wonders. Um, of course, Tom Hanks has a tiny role in this, and I think does a really great job of being their their second manager who takes them to the top. But a lot of great, you know, I think Tom Hanks, like knowing so many people in the industry, he was able to pull all these sort of character actors and side actors into this movie, and the list goes on and on. But we'll you know name check a few here i mean Charlize theron come on this is like her second movie it's a pretty big deal yeah yeah and i, th- I think she had like a bigger role we'll talk about this uh in a little bit here but she, you know yeah. there was an extended cut and her role got kind of cut down a little bit um for the theatrical cut but she still you know plays a pivotal role in this movie and like you said showing the difference between the one person who supports them Liv tyler's character and how she's sort of like uh you know whatever you're in a band like when are we yeah. gonna you know, when are we going to get out of here? Yeah. How long is this going to take again? I've totally had a girlfriend say that before. You're like, wow, really? You can just leave. That's cool. But man, just a, like a laundry list of like people that have little bit parts, like Kevin Pollack is the, the boss Vic Koss, the guy that is like the announcer for the audience before the wonders have their total bomb of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, Alex Rocco, Sil Siler, the sort of sleazy head of the, the record company. Um, you know, he's much older in this movie, but when you look at him, you're like, Oh, what's this guy from? It's like, Oh, it's Mo Green from the Godfather. Yeah. Um, you know, he's yeah. been in a ton of stuff. And then of course, uh, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, Giovanni Rabisi, who is their drummer who breaks his arm in the beginning. But I think it's cute that they cut to him a few times, you know, when mm-hmm. he's watching them perform, he's like, Oh, you know, like Tom Everett Scott's not playing the, the beat, like the way he, you know, the way <laughs> yeah. he played it. And I, I think it's great that they keep him involved in, in the audience. You know, what's nice too, about that Giovanni Rabisi character is that they could have really played up that jealousy or something that that character could have because, I mean, he's getting all of this fame that theoretically he might have gotten had he not broken his arm. But it's not. Tom Hanks decided to not play any type of jealousy up and, again, refreshing, an aspect that you wouldn't expect uh, coming coming out of a movie. And, uh, you know, a quick uh, role by Clint Howard, who always appears like in tiny roles in movies and and has like a funny bit. He's like the DJ who like is all about late night radio and falls asleep (laughs) during their interview uh, makes for a very funny sequence. You got to love Clint Howard showing up in something. And Bill Cobbs. I love Bill Cobb showing up in anything. He plays the legendary jazz musician Del Paxton that Guy Patterson, the drummer of the Wonders, is is uh, the biggest fan of. And I, I love that they bring Del Paxton back toward the end of the movie and they let that whole scene play out where they're they're doing like the sort of they're laying down the jazz 
a number in the studio. I think that's a really great moment. And I, I do like that. One thing again about this movie that I love is that they let these songs play out. We're not hearing just like 10 seconds. It's like, mm-hmm. and even after you've heard the song so many times, you, they, they play, you know, a full like minute of the song or like almost in its entirety. Yeah. One more uh, notable part of course is Rita Wilson, who is Tom Hanks's real wife in real life, playing this server named Marguerite, who takes care of a drunken guy when he's trying to befriend Del Paxton in the middle of the night at, at a jazz club. It's a it's a enchanting little part that's thrown in yeah. with her in it. And and Tom Hanks finally Tom Hanks bringing in other people from his other movies. Uh, the scene where they're doing the the beach bingo type movie. Uh, they get the the wonders get the job as the backup band. The director on that movie is Jonathan Demi, who directed Tom Hanks to his first Oscar for Philadelphia. So it's kind of cool. It so it's kind of cool that he brought Jonathan Demi in to to be the director on that scene. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the music of this movie because music plays such a huge part in this movie. I think one of the biggest things being is that you have this song, that thing you do, which is also the title of the movie is played throughout the movie so many times. And we as an audience have to believe that not only is this song good enough to have been a hit on the radio in in 1963, but also a song that we're not going to grow extremely tired of because it's played throughout the entire movie because we have to see them going up the charts and playing all these different shows and, you know, kind of like wanting to play their other songs because they've played it so much. So we have to feel like we've listened to it as, as much as they've exhausted in playing it themselves. And you got to have a pretty damn good song for that. Cause otherwise, you know, if the song doesn't work, the movie doesn't work because we're not going to believe that that's a song that would be on the radio. And so, you know, really smart to like find a songwriter, find some musicians to, to put together a song that w- would be, you know, the centerpiece for this entire movie. Yeah, and Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne, and he's a, or was a, a musician, composer, producer, kind of jack of all trades and knew every instrument, but was primarily the bassist for the band Fountains of Wayne, and who actually did pass away recently. He was the brainchild behind the song That Thing You Do. Kind of, uh, I mean, even Tom Hanks throws his hat into. Uh, writing the music for this. There were, I mean, of course, it wasn't actually the guys in the movie that had anything to do with writing of these songs, but um, Adam Schlesinger is is credited with the reason that you care about this band, and this song was a hit in real life, not just in the movie. Like, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. When I kind of love, too, that some of the songs, the secondary songs in the movie are also originals. They weren't, they didn't just kind of go for, you know, we have that thing you do. And then the rest of the the movie is like the top hits from 1963. I kind of love that, that the movie is full and he, you know, in the jazz numbers, like with Del Paxton, it's like a lot of stuff is, is it was made a, original for the movie, not just like, Hey, we're just, you know, this was big then and it's time uh, period appropriate, so we'll throw it on mm-hmm. the soundtrack. The other song that we hear in its entirety, I can't remember the name right now, but um, it's a r- real surfy number. I love, I kind of love that song a little bit more than that thing you do. I would have bought their record. That's what I'm saying. 
One other song too that's like sort of a ballad that they do that I think is like mm-hmm. uh, really good. And I do love too that there's like several variations of that thing you do, like the end credits. There's like a well, like a, a slower tempoed version of it. You know, I kind of like that they they like rework that into the movie as well. And if you notice too, I, I'm fairly certain, but that every time that we see the band or at least hear the song play through. And I think that's only three times that we hear the song in its entirety. Um, It is different every time. And I think that that's supposed to be because the band is like getting better as as it's going on. Like one of those tiny little attention to detail for the movie. Yes. Like uh, showing that they're getting tighter and showing that, you know, they're developing their sound throughout their you know, as they play more often and they get bigger shows. Well, finally, before we uh, wrap this up and move on to our picks of the week, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that there are, when the when the DVD Blu-ray of, of That Thing You Do came out uh, a little while back, uh, there was an extended cut on there that actually is about 40 minutes longer than the theatrical version. That's pretty huge. I mean, that's some, like, yeah. Oliver Stone director cut length. <laughs> And you wouldn't think that about a movie like that thing you do, you know, it just, yeah, it just, it's kind of a strange movie to think like, oh, there's this like extended 40 minute longer director cut of uh, that thing you do. You know, we're not talking about like a, a apocalypse now, you know, I kind of approached the extended cut with probably a very negative attitude thinking like, you know, this is, just, that's probably all this crap that they left in that need to be cut out of the movie, but I'm not going to lie. I really enjoyed the extended cut. I think it's well worth your time. I think the characters are so much more developed in the extended cut. I understand why they stripped things down and made it a tighter movie. But if you really enjoy the characters, if that's what you love the most about that thing you do, I think you're really going to fall in love with the extended cut. And I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's... I get not having the extended cut be what went in theaters, you know, for like purposes of making money and having a short, tight movie that's going to play well to the broadest audience. But I'll be damned if I don't think that extended cut is as, <laughs> as good or better if as the theatrical. If if I was showing this movie to someone for the first time, I would show them the extended cut. It, and it is totally because the relationships that are that are developed it makes me understand a little bit more like i like understanding and seeing the relationship between guy and fay and that this innocent flirting just doesn't kind of come out of nowhere and then they're together at the end i'm not saying that that's like what it is in the movie but it's hinted at a little bit in the extended cut we see these adorable like innocent cute flirting moments and it, the payoff is so much better, you know, when that happens. And even Charlize Theron's character, you know, she's kind of, you don't really care about her. She's kind of, you just think that she's kind of a, you know, you don't really like her. And in the extended cut, there's a little bit more to her relationship with Guy. And their relationship has a little bit more substance to it. And you do actually kind of care about her character after seeing that. In, in thinking about editing, it's it's cool to watch these back to back because, you know, when you watch the extended cut after watching the theatrical, like you can see where there's like this instinctual editing drive to say, OK, 
these particular scenes aren't moving the story forward. So like, let's cut those. We're not, we're not losing any story by cutting these scenes, but we're losing a little bit of the characters. When you watch extended cut, like you said, like there are like the ending, you know, like with Guy and Faye, their relationship is more developed. We still get the story in the theatrical cut. Everything makes sense. Nothing is, is left out, but things feel like they're, they kind of hit harder. The relationship seems stronger. The characters come off much more richer and much more developed in the, the in the extended cut. I like that Guy's character doesn't come across as cocky in the extended cut because you get a little bit more of, of who he is. And I think he, he comes across a little cocky in the theatrical release, but you, you understand it more when you see more of his character. So the extended cut, Justin, I think you and I can agree that we would recommend you watching that version and then going back and watching the theatrical and, you know, seeing, looking at the differences. Yeah. I'm happy it exists. I was, it was a very pleasant surprise. And I, and I feel like Tom Hanks is, was like pretty on board with the theatrical version. Otherwise, since it's called the extended cut and not like the director's definitive cut. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I think he was like pretty fine with you know, making the edits that they did to to shorten the film for for the theatrical release. Well, uh, let's stop there. We'll have some final thoughts on that thing you do, but we need to move on to our picks of the week. And Lindsay, you stayed in the Tom Hanks realm. What can you tell me about the Money Pit? Well, this may actually be my favorite Tom Hanks movie. And if you've not seen this unrestrained 1986 physical comedy, do yourself a favor and watch it. It's actually on Netflix right now. As the title indicates, this is a movie about throwing money down a never-ending hole of home repair. Even if you haven't gone through this experience, I think it's kind of easy to sympathize. And relatable subject matter spearheaded by two experts of comic timing, that being Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, it'd be pretty hard to not have a memorable movie. Money Pit follows a young, unmarried couple, Walter and Anna, who embark on a house-buying deal of the century, purchasing this massive mansion for a reasonably dirt-cheap price. As the house crumbles around them, so does their relationship. But don't fret, this movie is meant to make us feel positive and like we can overcome even the most defeating of obstacles. There is a fairly weighty subplot having to do with Anna's ex-husband, played by well-known Russian dancer Alexander Gudnov, who is this like unrelenting man trying to win back Anna. And herein lies the additional plot point, which weighs heavily on Walter and Anna's relationship. All while this couple is dealing with their house, turning into a pile of bricks around them. Speaking of their investment falling to pieces before their eyes, uh, this certainly is the main source of comedy throughout the movie. It becomes apparent very quickly that the couple bought a lemon Everything's going wrong so often that you'd think the absurdity of it would become tiresome. Somehow, though, the amping it up with every disaster manages to keep me laughing and waiting to see what next kind of mousetrap brand mishap is coming up next. It'll start with something simple, say, plugging an appliance into a wall socket, which leads to the entire circuitry of the kitchen being set on fire, resulting in a turkey shooting out of the oven, or Walter trying to repair one step on their staircase, and with each hammer hit, he weakens the entire structure, and the whole staircase disintegrates beneath him while Anna is being attacked by a raccoon upstairs. So when the stairs crumble, he can't then get to Anna who's screaming up there or even adding water to an upstairs bathroom tub. And then the tub collapses through the fragile floorboards who can forget 
Tom Hanks getting stuck in the floor because he walks on top of a carpet covering up a giant hole. This may be like the most well-loved scene in the movie. It certainly is mine. And even though this is all completely ridiculous, we accept that it's something feasible because this is the constant reality set before us. It also helps that both Long and Hanks give such sympathetic performances for and for a comedy that kind of strangely matters and makes this movie even worthwhile. We feel for them because this is a nice couple, something that could be familiar, even if the situation might seem crazy. In addition to the struggle with their house falling apart, we also sympathize with the jealousy conjured up by Gudnov's Max character trying to finagle Anna into cheating on Walter, and Walter's like slowly losing his sanity over their home in shambles. It's a cheap hit for such a fun movie, but I appreciate the way they squeeze in an emotionally conceivable struggle with a couple into like this totally ludicrous movie. And before I close out here, Justin and I both love to make mention of when music stands out in a movie and Money Pit's title song, which you may not remember, um, it was called The Heart Is So Willing by Stephen Bishop, is a pretty classic style 80s rom-com theme song. Give it a YouTube look up and see if you remember. And if you remember, you're probably my age range or older. <laughs> It wasn't exactly a chart topper. That said, I really noticed the entire score of this film. Uh, it feels so in tune with the overall feel of the movie and was put together by renowned French composer uh, Michel Colombier, who did movies like New Jack City, Purple Rain, Against All Odds, uh, Golden Child, just to name a few. So Money Pit is really a great afternoon, decently family-friendly movie, which predates the anxiety-riddled humor that the Ben Stillers of the world made so famous today. While there is this level of concern or worry how everything is going to end up, the movie is light and survives on its heart and the commitment to this imaginary reassurance that everything will be okay in the end, even if we don't see an immediate way to solve every problem that we're confronted with. If anything, it's a reassuring, positive, romantic comedy, and the validity of the movie solely rides on the shoulders of the very capable Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. Yeah, the Money Pit, a really fun movie. Uh, not one of my favorite Tom Hanks movies, but I think like that quintessential like '80s Tom Hanks, where he was still being all in funny. You know, like hadn't done any real serious roles yet. His maniacal laughter when he's really really losing his mind really wound up yeah really yeah all right your turn tell me about your pick of the week justin uh, my pick of the week was 1996's suburbia uh not to be confused with the early 80s punk movie suburbia though it fits the 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 movie characters it's kind of an odd to to reuse a title but outside of that um uh, the movie was directed by Richard Linklater, who had already kind of carved out a niche for doing movies that took place all in one day with a central group of characters that had like kind of real conversations. He did Slacker, Days of Confused, and Before Sunrise. And this movie's uh, very similar in that it all takes place in one day. It has a set group of characters. The conversations seem very real to life. But there's something a little bit different at play here. This is the first movie that he had directed that he didn't have a hand in writing or co-writing. It was written by playwright and sometimes actor Eric Bogosian. You know, you might know him from talk radio. He wrote and starred in that. This movie's it's got a it's got a very angry and dark tone to it, which I really appreciate. Uh, the movie revolves around a group of 
sort of post high school adolescents that are in that strange uh, limbo because you spend almost your entire life going to school. And if you don't decide to go to college right out of high school, you know, it's like everything has been kind of like planned for you. And then, you know, you're kind of expected to like jump into adulthood, but you're not quite there. You don't quite have the maturity level. And so, this movie follows like a group of post high school teenagers who are in a small suburban town in Texas, mainly spend their days hanging out in front of a convenience store to the annoyance of the guy who co-owns a store. The movie deals with a lot of stuff. It deals with, you know, anxiety. It deals with drug addiction, with racism. It deals with sexual abuse. It deals with uh, misogyny. I mean, there's so many elements that, that come to play that the movie actually, when you watch it now, it still feels razor sharp. Uh, it still feels very relevant, especially with the racism aspect and having a guy who's like the angry white male who is taken away by the cops, but then, you know, they let him off with no problem. And he comes back with a gun and, you know, there, there's a lot of humor in it. I mean, Steve Zahn in this movie as well brings a comedic edge, um, some great performances, the lead being Giovanni Ribisi, uh, Nikki Cat gives a great dark performance playing the angry white male with a gun. Really great music, uh, mostly done by Sonic Youth. A lot of great indie 90s bands are on this soundtrack. Uh, really, I think, great direction by Richard Linkletter, who really, I think, taps into the voice of like these youth and it makes them there, it's a very, I think, uh, interesting movie. It's it's definitely one you want to sit down and watch. It's not one you kind of want to like lazily watch while checking stuff on your phone. It's it's really like a, a movie that it helps for you to like kind of sink in and, and watch it. And it's a very uh, though it's all talking. It and and though it was based on the play and the staging sometimes feels maybe a little stagnant because of that. Um, the movie moves really fast and it also involves. Uh, music in some ways they're all kind of centering around this character who has made it big on MTV and he's coming back to visit that night um, and he kind of affects all these characters lives some are jealous some are happy to see him I had not seen it since the 90s and it was a really great uh, rewatch I, this is one I really uh, recommend strongly it's not uh, trying to think I didn't see if this was streaming anywhere I was able to track down the DVD but um if you're able to find it streaming, I definitely think it's worth checking out. I think any movie with Parker Posey in it is is worth checking out. Yeah, Parker Posey, I, I should have mentioned she's in this. It's a small role, and she seems to be playing one of the few non-teenage roles in this. Um, she plays the the sort of publicist for the rock star that, that shows up in a limo, and she has like a, a small but pivotal role in the movie. I think it's uh, available on Vudu right now with commercials. But you can find it out there. Thanks. I, I didn't. I for, forgot to check and see where if it was streaming anywhere. There's so many apps out there, and you know it could be on an app one day and then it disappears the next. But if you see it, it's it's always worth a Google to see if movies, especially our picks of the week, um, are out there on a streaming service. Yeah, it was one that was kind of hard to find for a while. Like I, I was able to get a DVD, but I remember for the longest time you could only get it on VHS. Yeah, that's the only way I have it on there. And I, man, I I haven't seen it in so long. I'm popping that in tonight. And I'll say a tiny little trivial thing about it is um, it was a movie I really, really loved uh, when it came out. And then I moved to Austin where it was filmed maybe like four years after the movie came out. And uh, the convenience store and, and laundromat where they filmed in front of 
uh, was not too far from the neighborhood I lived in. So sometimes I would just drive by and be like, oh, my God, that's where they did this kind of whole movie. Justin, I feel like if we had been friends earlier in life, we probably just would have like driven around to different filming locations. I wish we could do that now. I wish we lived in Los Angeles. I know. I wish we could do. We would do it all the time. If if the rent was the same <laughs> price in Los Angeles as it is in St. Louis, I'd say let's do it. But it's so easy to do in LA too. Anyway, thank you for reminding all of us um, about suburbia. I'm I'm totally watching it tonight. And thank you for bringing up a, a Tom Hanks classic with the Money Pit. Well, those are our picks of the week: suburbia and the Money Pit. Here's your Murray moment. <laughs> Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shocked? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. There's an endless amount of stories relating to music that could be told about Billy Murray. Just last episode was about Billy's love for musician John Prine. But for that thing you do, Tom Hanks playing the real-life changing manager of the vanilla 60s rock and roll band, I couldn't help but revisit the movie Rock the Casbah from 2015, um, a movie that Bill did with an old buddy, writer Mitch Glazer and director Barry Levinson. For this somewhat controversial story, Billy was on the front lines for this film. It took seven years to get this movie made, and all because executives were shying away from the movie taking place in Afghanistan, and a movie which some called a, you know, quote, potential new beginning for how Hollywood portrays people from the Middle East. Billy plays Richie Lands, said to be the man with legendary ears, and also a washed-up manager to musicians. He's living out of a dirty motel and only has one client left on its roster. After a chance encounter and booking his one client on a USO tour in Afghanistan, Richie's wannabe starlet has a meltdown once they get to this war-torn country, steals his money, passport, and plane ticket. But the heart of the story is yet to come, and here's where I'm taking us for this Murray moment. Glazer admitted he'd written the part for Billy, of course, after the man had already signed on. He's known Billy since the late 70s, long enough to know that you never really want to tell Bill that you've written anything for him, because most times those roles are going to be, you know, end up recycled characters that he's already played. Having missed seeing him in more comedic roles, and for this comedy with a seriously unfunny backdrop and content involved, Glazer knew Billy was the right guy for this job. While abandoned in Afghanistan, and I'm skipping over a big subplot of the movie, Billy's Richie character discovers a Pashtun girl of Afghanistan singing in a secluded spot in the desert. No one around, but from a distance, Richie hears her. He rushes over to see who has this amazing set of pipes and discovers Salima, played by Liam Lubani. Women's faces, their entire bodies are, are to be covered in Afghanistan, and singing is certainly not exactly welcomed. Salima dashes past Richie, who is stunned by what he's heard, despite what you know her culture might dictate, and is determined to get this woman's voice heard. 
And when he's told about a television show, Afghan Star, which is the country's American idol, his mind starts racing with a plan. This may seem far-fetched, but in 2007, an unbelievably brave woman named Satara Husseinzada and Lena Sahar performed on an episode of Afghan Star. This really happened. Sahar came in with a safe, demure performance for a woman in public, but Husseinzada was the opposite. She dropped her veil, danced, and moved in all the ways women are not allowed. This immediately caused a massive uproar. She wasn't allowed to return home, and death threats suddenly became a part of her normal life. Like, for real, Husseinzada started packing heat after this and fled her village. And life still isn't easy for her. She lives in hiding. She's She actually married a fan of hers. Uh, but they still, you know, live in fear. And she nevertheless, though, has become an underground legend. There have been two documentaries made about this subject. But, you know, Rock the Casbah is the movie version of this story and is going to play up all of it with a more inspirational side. While this could upset some or leave one feeling like this isn't the whole story, this is where I feel you have to remember that this movie could kind of be somewhat important. It took seven years to even get it made because people were too afraid about appearances. Not only is this movie an inspirational story about a woman daring to break barriers and an aging rock and roll manager trying to kickstart his career one last time, but this movie also broke so much typecasting that's always held a strong place in Hollywood. There are more than a few Middle Eastern actors who said that this was the first time in their entire acting career that they didn't play a terrorist in a movie. You don't have an obligation to educate. You just do it. If you do it correctly, Billy said of being on the film, if you set out with that intention, like I'm going to educate people with my work, you're sort of aiming at the curb and missing the stars. Billy's character says in the beginning of the movie that life is about seeing an open door and walking right through it. He may feel like all of the locks keep getting changed on him, but there's still a door and he's still going to make his way through. To me, Richie and Salima's story go hand in hand, having... A masterful, trustworthy comedian lead us through this story with an extremely serious backdrop is a crafty way to facilitate change, to make an unconscious difference, and to tell this courageous woman's story regardless of whether or not Hollywood needs a happy ending. The world is changing, but it's very slow, Billy said of the controversial aspects to Rock the Casbah. There is justice in the world. It just doesn't come the way we want it. It comes slowly. It's planetary. It's universal. It comes, but it comes very slowly. And how do you make change, he said? It really just starts with yourself. Now, there's a ton of backstory to Rock the Casbah, behind the scenes and whatnot, but I'll save that for another Murray-appropriate moment. But this movie and that thing you do may be vastly different films, but both share in being inspirational stories through the vein of music. And maybe Richie and Tom Hanks' Mr. White are very different music managers, but they still saw talent and knew exactly what to do. Man, you got me interested to see this movie. I, I'll, I'll, I've admittedly always put off like pulling the trigger on watching this one just because it has been one that's like been reviewed so badly. One of the few Bill Murray roles where he's like the main marquee star that I haven't seen. And I mean, pretty much this movie is an all non-white cast and it, it was filmed in morocco was said to take place in afghanistan but i mean even the crew was not american and if anything it really broke a lot of stereotypes and gave a voice to i think what's kind of been like missing or just been the norm of what we're used to seeing in movies and 
again, you know, there are aspects to it that you could feel are like glossing over. But the more that I watch it, the seriousness, the things that people say, oh, they're glossing over this like very serious war torn country that's been warring for years. But it's the backdrop. It's adding humanity to something that we we don't ever get to see that side of us. And when I say we, I mean, Americans. So I have enjoyed this movie every time I've watched it. Well, it's on my, it's, I just bumped it up to my, my big watch list. Oh, shoot, the big watch list. Wow. I'd have to fold it up like 30 times to even fit it in my pocket. <laughs> so thanks again for that Murray moment. Of course, anytime. I've got one final kind of little funny, goofy thought on that thing you do. Did you have any other uh, comments on that thing you do before we, we wrap up the episode? Oh, one little thing I found out, and I couldn't find full confirmation other than um, Jonathan Sheck saying that it was, but that the Del Paxton uh, jazz legend character that Guy Patterson loved so much was... Now, this movie was being written by Tom Hanks when he was on Apollo 13, and it said or alluded to that Del Paxton is really Bill Paxton. Just a... A good all-round master of the craft that you admire. And I don't know, maybe it's just a little tiny urban legend. But I really like thinking about that as, you know, Tom Hanks wrote that as Bill Paxton. R.I.P. All right. You have a final thought? Uh, Just like a final little thing. It was in an Ethan Embry interview when he was talking about that thing you do days. And I guess he bought some sort of pet, like it was like a chicken or a duck or something. He had like a pet that I don't know if why it was on set or what I don't know. Seventeen year old doing with a chicken. Yeah, I I don't. I don't know what the what how why it came to be that that he had this. But I guess apparently like kissed it on its on its like beak and got some sort of like viral stomach viral thing from it. Like got (gasps) really really sick and was trying to fight through it while they were uh, shooting uh, one of the scenes and. And he ended up uh, his his stomach got the best of him, and he he pooped <gasps> his, he pooped his pantaloons while he was no! on. No, yeah. right? And and everybody kind of like I think it was like known that it happened, and so uh, quite embarrassing. But I you know he tells it and as a as a funny afterthought. But uh, that would be truly awful, you know, if you're 17 and you're in a big movie and Tom Hanks is directing and and you you do some goofy thing that you would do when you're 17, like yeah, you know, kiss a kiss a live animal on its, <laughs> on its dirty mouth and, and and get some sort of weird viral stomach flu. Oh, that poor sweetie. I can't even like laugh like making fun of like crap in your pants. That That is not, I mean. Yeah. It's funny, but it's not funny. I don't wish that on anyone. I don't, yeah. Oops, I crap my pants. Yeah. No, yeah. I just can't do it. Poor guy. That makes me love Ethan Embry even more. Even times where I've like almost crapped my pants have been terrifying, but actually doing it on a big job would be would be pretty awful. Can't imagine. I'm just like white knuckling it, trying to drive home, you know, get to a bathroom. Yeah. But you're in front of a bunch of celebrities and getting paid God knows how much money on a multi-million dollar movie and you crap your pants. Yeah. Good Lord. But uh, what better way to end the episode than on lowbrow <laughs> toilet humor? Love it. Perfect. That's a great story. Thanks for thanks for having the courage to share that with the world, Ethan Embry. 
Um, what do we have coming up for, for the next episode here, Lindsay? Um, well, we have actually one of your favorite films. And I did not know this uh, was on your list of most beloved films. And I can't wait to dive into I don't, it. I don't know if I said it was one of my favorite films. <laughs> it is a beloved film. I love it, too. I, I'm really stoked to go into the backstory of this. And that is... Pretty Woman. This is a movie that I've always enjoyed, and it's a huge movie, but it's one that I also think got so played out. It's not one that I like revisited often for a while, and I've seen it, you know, two or three times in the last uh, five years. And man, it still is charming, and it's really funny. There's so much uh, behind the scenes stuff with this movie. I think that alone, Gary Marshall is. I've always appreciated that man's writing and directing and humor. Yeah, this movie was a phenomenon. And I think even if you, it's a movie that if you haven't seen it, you know about it, know who was in it, know at least one scene from it, you know? Yep. So next next episode, we're going total rom-com, Pretty Woman. Well, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to check out older episodes, for some reason, uh, Spotify, some of these other platforms, they seem to cut off. I don't know how to control that. They don't uh, put all of our old episodes up, but you can always find those at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. On our website there, we have an archive of all the old episodes. We also have a merch store. We've got merch uh, with our logo slapped on to air fresheners, coffee mugs. If we also... Have some uh, little things we assembled. We've got some VHS keepsake boxes, pretty cool stuff to stash all kinds of secret things in. We've got old movie posters up, uh, you know, pretty much anything that uh, we could find in our closet to throw on to sell to make more money to uh, (laughs) keep our podcast running, you know. So please shop our merch site. Please also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube at Don't Push Pause Podcast. And if you want to reach us for any reason whatsoever, just to say hi, tell us what movie you're watching, you can reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. 